You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello, good afternoon, Reese and Andy. It's a pleasure to have a, a three-way Skype chat going today. Um, now, today we're, we're, we are gathered to talk about uh, aviation archaeology and some of the issues surrounding it, and some of the most pertinent issues, also some of the most um, poignant and emotive, and that is to what extent is, say, a crash... Uh, site from the Second World War, a site which should be seen as a place, with, uh, or rather, a place where objects have been deposited and are ripe for the plucking, whether that's for personal collections or even to go back to a museum. Uh, to what extent is this true? Because um, from an archaeological understanding, a crash site is in context and it's the landscape uh, together with the remains that are there which actually make the site what it is. Um, this balance, I suppose, between between wanting to 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 reclaim maybe uh, the dead, or maybe or, or perhaps to reclaim a, 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 an aircraft for for a museum, um, and also the archaeological integrity of the site. This balance is a really difficult one to get right, I suspect. Uh, now, obviously, Andy, you've you've um, you've dealt with this quite a lot in the past, and uh, what sort of thoughts do you have? I, I, I've got many, Mark, and I hope we'll explore them over the next sort of 20 minutes, half an hour or so. And um, thank you for setting up the chance to for us to discuss it like this. Um, it's great to be talking to Newcastle and Geelong in Australia. Uh, it's quite a remarkable experience, actually. Um, I think that we're in a very interesting situation vis-à-vis uh, -vis the archaeology of aviation at the moment, in that we don't actually have an archaeology of aviation. What we have is a series of um, excavations, research programs and so on, which happen to be about aviation related subjects. Sometimes it's individual aircraft, sometimes it's um, sites like uh, airfields, factories, uh, other things that are associated with. And what we don't have at the moment, and certainly in the UK, and I think it's probably fair to say internationally, um, is any concept that there is an archaeology of aviation. Uh, certainly any, any acceptance among the broader archaeological and ar academic archaeological community that there is an archaeology of aviation. I think we're just on the cusp of that um, and I think that's one of the reasons it's such an exciting field to be a part of and so it, uh, it, uh, and it's so relevant that we're talking about it now. I think, I, to reduce it to one line, I think we're at the stage with the archaeology of aviation that we were at in the 1960s with maritime archaeology and industrial archaeology. I think I think there's a rapidly developing new subdiscipline that is going to become recognised um, in, if not uh, in the immediate future, certainly in the near future. Right. Okay. Um, uh, would you would you go along with that, Reese? Absolutely. I mean, uh, my understanding of the situation is that uh, aviation sites are becoming uh, looked at uh, more predominantly for um, from different sectors of society. For example, um, particularly when we're talking about the military, um, in Australia we, we do have archaeologists working with military units um, going out for the specific purpose of recovering. Um, sites like this and recording sites like this. Um, usually it's under the premise of returning um, the deceased pilots or aircrew. Um, however, if you're talking about it from a purely archaeological perspective and not just returning 
um, deceased air crews. Um, I think that's also an interesting concept within itself because you're talking about um, archaeological research there rather than a repatriation program run by uh, the military. Hmm. Mm. Okay. Now, this is where this is where it all starts to get a little bit difficult because um, there are there are areas where uh, where collectors, for example, come in. Um, there are areas where aviation enthusiasts come in, and many of whom actually will take great care of whatever material remains come into their charge. Uh, if they, if they're tasked to look after something, or even if they just happen to come across something, they will they will keep it well. They won't let it go rusty, for example, in a shed, or you know, they'll keep it fairly stable. Um, but is that good enough? I mean, uh, for example, it almost feels a little bit like the situation that we had um, just over a hundred years ago, I suppose, in uh, in Egypt, where uh, remains that were of undeniably of, un of of great interest were being brought to Europe um, for the you know for, for the betterment of those remains, for the in order to keep them in a museum. And the argument, in a very colonialist way, was made that that this is the best way to look after them. Um, local people can't possibly look after those remains. And it feels a little bit like that with aviation archaeology. I'm not saying that local people can't look after them, but rather that somehow they're better off at home. Um, now, in the past, actually, Andy, you've mentioned uh, an example in, I think it was in Sweden, where there was a crash site which which was subject to uh, to this um, removal of remains, but then remains were redeposited. Uh, can you just talk about that for a bit? Um, absolutely. It, it, it's a site um, in northern Sweden, up near the Arctic Circle, near a small town called Poyos. Uh, the aircraft concerned is a Royal Air Force Lancaster um, called Easy, which is the crew called Easy Elsie. Um, so Easy Elsie um, was bombing the Tirpitz in October 1944 when she was damaged, and the crew diverted to northern Sweden and crash landed on a on a bog. They all walked away. Um, they were picked up and fairly quickly repatriated by the Swedish authorities. And the aircraft stayed on the bog. It was partially dismantled by the Swedish Air Force for intelligence reasons, because that's what the military do. And then um, after the war, it uh, went into possession, uh, we understand, of a, a local scrap dealer who began to cut it up, but never finished the job. So basically, you have a Royal Air Force 617 Squadron Lancaster sitting on a bog in northern Sweden. Um, in the 1970s and 80s, as the, as the interest in aviation archaeology, uh, or the, uh, the, uh, uh, the interest in World War II wreck recovery, I won't call it archaeology, World War II wreck recovery, grew. Um, there were moves, and there still are moves, to have the aircraft repatriated to Britain. Um, at one stage as well in Sweden, um, part of the aircraft was removed to a museum, but it was then put back. Um, at the same time, one of the aircraft's tail fins was given to the museum in Tromsø in Norway, where uh, the sinking of the Tirpitz is commemorated. So pieces of the aircraft have gone into a museum context, but other pieces that were removed have been put back because it was decided it was inappropriate. Mm. It couldn't be properly you know, displayed, conserved, and, and, and so on. So you're dealing with um, a complex history in the first place. And, and now, actually, as we speak, there are further moves among the British, it has to be said, uh, aviation enthusiasts, uh, to have the aircraft removed from Poyos and brought back to England for museum display. Now, I have to say personally, having visited the site 
very recently for a, in the course of a TV program, um, and I'm in the process of writing up the report about that. Um, the aircraft is well displayed with special walkways built around it, so you don't actually have to uh, walk on the bog and damage the environment or damage the aircraft by walking on it. Um, it's well, so it's well displayed. It's displayed with a view to the local environment. Nearby, there's a picnic area and barbecue, and even a self-composting loo. Um, so you know, you have this object that it has these strong resonances for for the British. It's six one seven squadron, the Dambusters. It's a Lancaster, um, but at the same time, it's been adopted by the local community. There's been a huge amount of work done, um, valuable work done by the Poyos Archive Committee, the local historical society who have researched the subject. It's been visited by the air crew, uh, surviving members of the air crew and their families while they were still alive. And um, personally, I think it's a, a very interesting example of how what might be seen as a nationalistic cultural object can actually become adopted um, and become part of the cultural and heritage and natural environment of another community and takes on a whole different value of meaning, uh, layer of meanings and resonances and, and importances because of that. Hmm. So, hmm. you know, I, I, I think it, it's, it's a complicated story. It's a, uh, it's a complex story, but I think it's one that gives us lots of pointers when we're discussing this issue. Hmm. And I suppose uh, in that sense, um, there is, a, there is there's quite a good... Um, um, analogy going back from Scandinavia to here, in so much as uh, the, the the ongoing discussion surrounding many, for example, silver Viking, so Viking silver hordes, which are found in places like Yorkshire and the east of England, for the most part. Um, there are those in, for example, Denmark, who want those things back, even though much of the silver won't be from Denmark. They just sort of go, "Well, it's Viking. It must be. It must be ours." Um, and uh, it, that, I just find that fa it's fascinating how um, th this isn't just uh, an issue which surrounds, I suppose, aviation and uh, aircraft remains, but it seems to be particularly um, strong and str particularly strong emotions which do surround them. I mean, uh, what, 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 what do you think, Reese? Is, is there ever a, a good argument to be made for actually um, taking um, say a downed aircraft out of its, the landscape where it finds itself? I would say yes. Um, to be honest with you, there's going to be two sides to this story within the archaeological community. Um, there will be people that say um, a site, an aviation site like this should be left in situ um, if it's not in any immediate danger. And obviously if it's in immediate danger, um, there's mitigating circumstances to resolve that issue. But I also think that what we have to look at, we, we have to look at a values-based approach here. We have to look at things like, um, does the area, for example, where this Lancaster is um, crash-landed, is there an association with the local, um, th th there seems to be an association uh, with the local community that they've um, valued it as part of um, themselves. So giving it that value, um, I believe, makes it part of their landscape um, just as much as it um, is part of um, this, uh, British, this British um, national movement to get the planes back. I mean, it's just as important to these people in some ways. Do I think the situation could be resolved um, by moving the plane back to the United Kingdom? I don't think so. 
Um, not not in this specific situation. I think it probably should be left where it is predominantly because um, the Swedish have obviously, I mean, if they set up things such as um, uh, toilets and um, place, basically it's a visiting centre. If you've set that up, it's obviously um, being looked after appropriately. Um, and yeah, I just I just think that to remove it and put it in a British museum, or um, in this case, even do it back up. Um, I mean, that's what we're talking about, isn't it, Andy? Is is if we bring this home, it will be um, done up again and then put on display in a museum. I'm just... Not not necessarily. I mean, I, I think um, it, it it the aircraft in such a state that any attempt to restore it, you'd end up with basically a facsimile. Mm. And, and what's the point? Mm. Um, well, and I suppose actually that, that and that's something which which really interests me in this whole issue is that there are those who who reckon that actually as long as you have a, a piece of an original plane in one of these facsimiles, it's been worth the effort. Um, and yet. Uh, there is there is there is a very reasonable additional concern. I mean, the cultural and local, uh, whether or not a local um, a, a group of people have have sort of adopted the site to one side, and that is that that these these sites also represent. Um, crash sites they're, they're almost like crime scenes in that sense and if you, uh, if you if you start plucking the bits that you like out of that 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 area before it's been adequately investigated um are you in fact doing i mean i don't know could could it border on a criminal act i mean there are, I, I'm, I'm aware that there are situations for example in the second world war where if, if you monkey with a, a second world war site um you're actually committing a crime <laughs> so um uh, what, what are your thoughts on that um uh I think it's absolutely essential that anybody who goes into this area, particularly as regards to military aircraft, is fully aware of the fact that under international law, unless it's been specifically signed off by the government concerned, what's called the flag state, aircraft are covered what's by, uh, by what's called a, a sovereign immunity. Well, and just, to, just, to, just to clarify, so the flag state is the state from which the aircraft came, not where it landed? Precisely. So, yeah. if you take an example of um, a, a, a British aircraft that landed in, uh, came down in Germany um, during World War Two, for example, the aircraft and the air crew remain uh, the property and the responsibility, respectively, of the British government. Um, at the same time, local heritage law in Germany, whichever German lander it happens to be, would also apply. So you've got a double legal situation there when you're dealing with um, with, with, with the military, and um, there also there are statutes in international law under the Geneva Conventions and so on about the treatment of the remains of uh, deceased military personnel and so on. So there's there's a lot of legal, um, quite correct legal scaffolding that has to be put in place before you even think about touching one of these sites. Mm, mm. Certainly in under UK practice, um, the Ministry of Defence will not grant you a licence under the British Protection of Military Remains Act to excavate or recover a British aircraft if there are thought to be aircrew present, right. remains of aircrew present. Right. Um, in other jurisdictions, they take a different view. America has a specific branch of the American military called JPAC, the Joint 
Personnel and Missing in Action Accounting Command, um, which puts out field teams of archaeologists, forensic anthropologists and so on to specifically recover the remains of missing US personnel. They've chosen to do things a different way. Is that is that actually the answer, to actually have uh, archaeological units who, who are tasked with, obviously outside cases of... of, of total war as it were but when when they can they are tasked with going and investigating um, and recording such sites in a way which is respectful which which uh, as some people might say which you know which which restores honor to the whoever might have died on the site um, but also which means that 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 they are that that they are they're logged that these archaeological sites aren't just seen as uh, or aren't possible it's not possible for them to become um, almost like uh, sweets scattered across the desert for example uh, in in the case of the second world war campaign there i mean what what, what do you think reese would you would you be um, comfortable seeing that do you think think that that is a solution or would you much rather see a civilian archaeological approach to to such sites i'd say yes i, I do feel comfortable with that in fact um australia already has this situation um i do have a friend who is in fact uh, inducted into the rwaf um over here as a as an officer he's an archaeologist um, and the only reason for this was uh, to qualify him to go over with a military unit to Papua New Guinea where the battle for um, the Kokoda track was fought, where we did have um, planes flying over and crashing there. Um, where there are quite a lot of missing personnel and pilots. So um, the Papua New Guinea government has basically given the Australian um, military uh, the okay to go over there and retrie retrieve these personnel when they are found. Um, I think this is a this is a good thing. This is a good thing because it's being looked at um, by an archaeologist at the head of the military division who is trained in being sensitive on such sites. Um, you're also dealing with the same uh, military that um, the site is related to, so the Australian Air Force. And what I think about, I think there is a, a further. Um, point to this in the sense that the archaeology um, is educating people within the military on the importance of these um, sites as well. And I mean, it, uh, the military's always had a high standard of um, respecting history, I find, um, within, cer within certain um, areas. However, there are also... Um, issues. There have been issues recently where they had to send um, anthropologists um, over to Afghanistan and Iraq um, in the recent conflict there to basically um, talk to the uh, militaries that were there about um, sensitivity training. Hmm. Um, and I think this works. This works back into our aviation discussion where you have archaeologists and anthropologists dealing with uh, military uh, to basically um, do not do the right thing but it's basically making sure that the situation is taken care of in the highest regard yeah um okay so yes i i think i think um that is the best way to approach um <clears throat> sites okay can i make two can i make two points very quickly martin just in following that up um i think it's important to stress that the recovery of the missing which may be uh, I think that most people would, would, wouldn't argue is, in many respects, a, a, a social good, uh, something that we as a society might choose to do, isn't archaeology. An archaeological expedition would not set out deliberately to recover the missing. Yeah. Although 
um, you know, that we can point to many cases where conflict archaeology in particular has been done on sites where the missing have been found and recovered forensically, anthropologically, fully correctly under archaeological conditions and have even ended up with named headstones because the work's been done so well. So uh, I think it's important to make that distinction, though. Mm. Um, and secondly, just in terms of the involvement of the military, certainly in the UK, there's been some very interesting work done recently by the British Defence Infrastructure Organisation, who have an archaeological team um, led by Richard Osgood currently, and um, they have been working, for instance, with current serving personnel on an archaeological project called Operation Nightingale, which helps rehabilitate service people who've been injured on, uh, on active duty, mm -hmm. um, including in Afghanistan. Um, one of the sites they worked on uh, recently was a Spitfire that crashed on Salisbury Plain. Mm. Uh, and that was a full archaeological excavation. It's just been published in British Archaeology and I think shows one way forward. And also, again, the involvement of the current military in this subject area in the way that Reese has just described in terms of Australia. I think that's, you know, there's some very interesting developments going on, which is, is, again, to come back to where I started, it's one of the reasons I think this is such an interesting and rapidly developing field and, and, and one I'm very happy to be working in. Okay, so um, this video is is getting quite long and I, th I suspect we may have to return to these these issues in uh, at a later date, but um, I'm going to invite you both to make a brief uh, summarising comment uh, towards the end, um, but I suppose my submission uh, at the end of this video would be that this is a fascinating situation in so much as what we have essentially are archaeological sites which are um, movable uh, and it's not it's not often that you, it's not really until you get to a certain point in time that you have an event which can be seen physically that is to say archaeologically happening um, elsewhere which involves people from a particular country. Now, of course, you do have uh, instances where maybe someone has migrated into a country and has died in the area and has been buried there. But uh, to have such a, a quick flashpoint event where a national from one country can be found or, uh, or a plane from one country can be found in another country, I think it has to present challenges which need to be addressed. Uh, for it's, it's kind of like having Stonehenge uh, on wings and it can fly and land somewhere else and how do you deal with that do we try and reclaim Stonehenge if it's flown away or do we uh, do we leave it where it is because it's now found it's now an, an archaeological moment and a monument in another country so for me that that's that's one of the most interesting things about this discussion um, so uh, can I invite you Andy to make your final comments yeah um all I would say to finish is there is a very interesting document that was published um, by the American uh, National Park Service talking about the archaeology of aviation. And one of the uh, comments it makes in there is it isn't just aeroplanes. Um, I think we must remember that we're not just talking about aeroplanes and aircrew. We're talking about a much wider archaeology of aviation. In terms of the archaeology of aviation, I think as archaeologists and professional archaeologists and, 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 and heritage people, we need to recognise that as with maritime archaeology and as with industrial archaeology, a lot of the running in terms of recognising the importance of this came from the community. It came from non-specialist, non-academic groups who valued this before ever the professional and academic world of archaeology got interested in this. We're playing catch-up and we need to respect that uh, at the same time as perhaps moving things on to a more developed kind of practice um, in terms of uh, recovery, conservation, 
conservation in situ and publication. And the final comment I'd make is that uh, I hope, and I think we're moving towards the day when uh, an aircraft site specifically is seen in the same way that people um, um, ha have seen shipwrecks, um, and, and that is as a as a sealed time capsule of a moment that freezes the entire experience of that particular object, the aeroplane, and everybody who was on it and had worked on it, and so on. So um, yeah, it, it's not it, it, it's about aeroplanes. It's fascinating, but it's not just about aeroplanes. Okay, and uh, and Reese. I honestly do believe that um, with the way archaeology is going in general, um, archaeology of aviation is going to be just one subject of many that we're going to be talking about in the future as to what actually constitutes um, archaeology. Um, where um, where are we going to be overlapping with different pr um, professions where we haven't overlapped before? Um, but yeah, I, I mean, as Andy said, it isn't just aircraft, it's um, it's air, airport airstrips that uh, have been abandoned, even NASA, um, old NASA um, rocket launch sites and Soviet Union missile sites and things like that. These are all things that um, people haven't considered archaeology yet, but in the next 50 years, it'll be something that we'll probably be excavating or um, writing a new history of. We already are in some cases. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, on that note, um, I think that's quite a good place to end. Um, I think we probably will revisit this topic and expand on this, but it'd just be lovely to see what people watching this video make of it. And if they want to comment below, please do. And uh, we will definitely read your comments. And um, we, we'd just love to, I suppose, to continue this conversation because it's one which is happening at the moment in, in the archaeological world and in the aviation enthusiasts world. And it's one which uh, I think it's important that the archaeologists start start to have a voice and an opinion on so um so yeah i look forward to seeing where that goes um and uh, well as always guys thank you so much for your time thank you very much thanks mark see you bye-bye this show is produced by chris webster and tristan boyle this has been a presentation of the archaeology podcast network visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www dot archaeologypodcastnetwork dot com